Uh, I will pray for us, and then we'll dive in. We'll be in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It's not the whole chapter, just the first 12 verses. Uh, I'll I'll get us started with, with prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. Thank you for this church. Thank you for everyone here, um, the fellowship that we have together, the gifts that you've given each one of us to share. Thank you for Mike and his, um, the words you give him each Sunday, and I, I, I thank you that you've also given others in this church the ability to come up and, and speak as well. So I pray for uh, my words specifically today, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak through me, um, would guide me, and really impart the message that you want to impart today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So open up your Bibles or your Bible phone apps, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of go back to the Old Testament today a little bit too in anticipation, uh, which anticipated the arrival of of uh, John the Baptist, who's mentioned here in Matthew 3. So I'll start off by reading the passage in Matthew. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Key points. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, Quote, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. At that time, Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And do not assume that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, so this passage introduces us to the famous John the Baptist in Scripture. As I mentioned before, really to get a full understanding of who he is and his calling from God, we need to go back to the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophecies that talk about him and his his message. So we go back to the Old Testament, and what do we see? We see God making a number of covenants to his chosen people, Israel, that they would be a great nation coming from the father Abraham, through which God would provide blessing to all the nations. 
God also promised that an ideal leader for Israel would come in the future through the line of David. If you recall from our study of Samuel, that God made promises uh, to David that he would, that there would be a great king coming from his line that would rule forever. But what happens in the Old Testament? We read that Israel fails over and over to live up to the terms of these covenants. Ultimately, a civil war, David dies, and a civil war breaks out after Solomon's reign in about 931, and the kingdom is divided into a northern kingdom, kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so kings end up ruling over the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But what we see is king after king in both kingdoms give in to idolatry and sin. Almost all of them. So much so that God warns them through the prophets and ultimately allows both kingdoms to fall to their enemies. We see the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrian Empire in 722 and the southern kingdom falling to the Babylonian Empire in 586. And the people there in Jerusalem were taken into exile by the Babylonians. So they lose their land. The temple is destroyed. Things are looking bleak. But through the midst of these failures, God's promise of a future king through the line of David didn't go away. The covenant still stands. Amidst the chaos, we get a prophet by the name of Isaiah who reminds Israel of this in chapter 9. Israel chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence. As with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the marching warrior in the roar of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. And then the famous line that we read often at Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Here's our king. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, there's our covenant, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Accomplish this. So we see this future king, this eternal king will come. The promise is still there. Isaiah continues on about this future king in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, if you recall, is the father of David. So again, from the line of David, we have this king. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he's, his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge 
the poor, and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fattened steer will be together. And a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then on that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal flag for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This will be a king like no other king. He will rule in glory, not just for Israel, but over all the nations and all creation, and bring perfect justice through his perfect righteousness. We see this picture in Isaiah of this beautiful kingdom where, where everyone, everything is at peace and made right. All the wrongs will be made right. But what happens after Isaiah's prophecy? More kings come and go. They don't fit the bill. Israel is still a conquered nation. Can you imagine being in Israel and imagine the discouragement? You're still in exile. How long must they wait? But God gives them a clue, a clue to watch for. And this clue is a person. The Old Testament refers in several places to a messenger who will prepare the way for a king and a future appearance of the prophet Elijah. Isaiah goes on later on after the verses I've read in chapter 40, and this is where Matthew picks up Isaiah's uh, passage here in, uh, in our reading in Matthew 3. Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here we go, the voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah here is providing comfort and hope to the Jews in exile in Babylon. We have a picture here of a desert and a wilderness, alluding back to the Israelites wandering in the desert after fleeing Egypt. But we also have a future messenger in this desert who will call people to prepare for the Lord. Let's fast forward a few years to the book of Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. At this point, Babylon had been defeated by Persia, and the Persian king allows the Jews to return to Israel. So they do. A lot of them return back to Israel. Israel is able to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Babylonians. For the Jews, this was a huge step forward. But they were still under the rule 
of a foreign king. They were still ruled by Persia. But the promise still exists. God's promises never go away. They're forever. What he says will come true. Malachi writes in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am sending my messenger. This is God. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Here the Lord God is speaking And in the first verse, first part of the verse mentions sending a messenger to clear the way before him. The temple had been rebuilt, but they're still living under this occupied power of Persia and were experiencing economic troubles. They were feeling disconnected from their relationship with God. Malachi goes on in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah. So we see not just a messenger now, but this name Elijah. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before coming, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So here God is promising to send at least an Elijah-like prophet before the coming of the Lord. You know, interestingly, interestingly, the name Malachi in Hebrew means messenger. So we have kind of a double meaning here, a wordplay, where Malachi is a messenger foreshadowing a future messenger. So now the Jews have a sign. When they see the return of Elijah, they know the promised king has also arrived. You know the Jews today still are looking for Elijah? Every Passover, what do they do? During Passover meal, they'll leave their door, front door open and set an extra cup of wine on the table hoping that Elijah will return. Because they know that when Elijah returns, the king is coming. He's right behind him. But what happens after Malachi? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing happens. 400 years. 400 more years of silence, no prophecies, no sign, no messenger. Persia falls to the Romans, but Rome still has the power over Israel. They're still ruled by a foreign power. Can you imagine what the Jews were thinking during this time? God has made these promises for a Messiah to save them from their enemies and to bring them back into the fullness of God's grace. They were expecting this Messiah to establish or reestablish the Davidic kingdom, the glory of the Davidic kingdom on earth in the same land that David's kingdom had occupied centuries earlier. 400 years, they wait. Generations come and go, they wait. They're looking, but they still look. Now we come to the New Testament. A little bit of background on John the Baptist. Matthew's gospel doesn't go into Matthew's background, 
but Luke's gospel does. So Luke's gospel captures, captures John's birth. He's, he's born to a, a couple, a very old couple. His mother, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, was old. She was barren. She really shouldn't have been able to have kids. But like Sarah in the Old Testament, God provides a way. Both Zechariah, her husband, and Elizabeth were righteous before the Lord. Zechariah was actually a priest in Jerusalem. And one day, while Zechariah was burning incense inside the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says that Elizabeth would bear him a son, and he shall call his name John. And John should not drink wine, strong, should not drink wine or strong drink, and will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. Luke 1, 16 and 17 says that Gabriel tells Zechariah, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go out as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zechariah had some unbelief initially about his wife actually being able to conceive, much like Abraham. And thus he was rendered mute during the pregnancy until John was actually born. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel actually visits Mary as well and tells her, if you recall, that she will conceive of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and tells her also of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and when she enters Elizabeth's home and greets her, remember what happens? The baby leapt in her womb. John leapt in her womb. I picture them, him doing sort of these jumping jacks or something in, in the womb. John's born. Zechariah names him John and is immediately relieved of his muteness. He praises God. But fear came upon all the people, all the neighbors surrounding this. And all the circumstances of this get spread throughout all of Judea. Who is this man, John? Who is... Why is he named John? No one in Zechariah's family was named John. That wasn't a family name. Zechariah was told to name him John. But something special, obviously, with the muteness, the name, something special was, obvious, was obviously present. And God was obviously working through the situation. Then what will this child be, they were asking. So we can clearly see the connection between the Old Testament prophecies and the appearance of John on the scene. Matthew 3, our passage, specifically says that John is he who was spoken about by Isaiah. John's whole message is turning the hearts of the Jews who were wandering in their spiritual desert to repentance. Jesus himself speaks of John later in the Gospel of, in Matthew, which we'll get to in, in chapter 11, but I'll read part of it now, <clears throat> chapter 11, verses 10, and 11, or 10 through 15. Jesus says, this is the one about whom it is written, and he quotes here Malachi 3.1, behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you 
who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been treated violently, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here Jesus definitively calls John the Elijah who was to come as prophesied in Malachi 4.5. So is, is, he not, is he Elijah? He's not Elijah, but he's the Elijah-type messenger that the Jews were longing for. He even looks like Elijah. In Elijah's time, he wore camel hair and a leather belt. We read about that in 2 Kings 1.8. Here we have John in the same garb. We also find him eating locusts and honey, which actually, if you're in the desert for a long period of time, it's, it's not a very unusual meal, <laughs> quite frankly. That's kind of what's out there. But at the same time, it is the food and the garb of someone who's poor, someone who's not pretentious, someone who's taken a no-frills approach to his message and focus, yeah, focusing on the message at hand. He was not out for material wealth or riches. He had no alternative motives. His only desire was to fulfill his calling to herald the coming of the Messiah. So what are the main points of John's message that we read here? I'll give you two main points. Repentance and the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance. Repentance here, John says, is marked by confession and baptism. This week is Halloween. For those who celebrate Halloween, many will celebrate it. October 31st, we'll celebrate it in some fashion. We'll dress up in costumes. We'll get candy. Walk around the neighborhood, whatever. But a few of us might also take the moment on that day to celebrate Reformation Day. Also October 31st. That marks the day in 1517 when Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg. You know what was number one on his list? What was the number one thesis? Thesis. When our Lord, here I'll quote it, when our Lord, our Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is John's message. So what does it mean? It means to change one's mind, turning away from one way of thinking and living, one way of thinking and living to a different way. Baptism here symbolizing the cleansing of sin and passing safely through the waters of judgment and death. We see this throughout Scripture, the water symbolizing passing safely through. We see the, Noah, the Noahic flood. We see the parting of the Red Sea. There's others, other examples. We just had a baptism service not too many weeks ago where Mike 
spoke a lot on the meaning of water in the Old Testament. But repentance is a difficult message to give. It's a difficult message to receive. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. But we need to hear it. We need to hear what the right way is. John actually loses his life for doing this. We'll get to that in Matthew 14, but what we find out is Herod was beheaded for his trouble by Herod the Tetrarch. Why? Because he called out Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. Told him to repent. Herod didn't like that. Put him in prison. And ultimately, at a banquet feast, John's head gets delivered out on a platter for all to see. But repentance is a good thing, is it not? It's not just stopping doing bad things, but start doing the good things, the good things that lead to flourishing, the flourishing life with Jesus. Doing the right thing is showing loyalty to Jesus the King. John is saying here that Jesus the King is coming, and you need to prepare for your loyalty to him. Now is the time for choosing. Your loyalty to the king will be a blessing. Loyalty to something or someone else makes you an enemy. That leads to the second point. John is here heralding a new kingdom of heaven. We read about the kingdom of heaven elsewhere too. It's sometimes called the kingdom of God, found in other gospels. But the Jews at this time, again, were waiting. They were longing, as we talked about before, hoping for this Messiah to form a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But their idea of the kingdom was very different from what the kingdom that Jesus was going to bring. They expected an earthly kingdom along the lines of David's earthly kingdom and in the region of historical Israel. They expected heaven here on earth. But Jesus had a kingdom in mind that was spiritual. His kingdom would and will be physical, don't get me wrong, in the new heaven and the new earth. But what he wanted in the first coming is to rule people's hearts. And John says that this kingdom starts now. Starts now. Repent now. Get on board. Prepare the way of the Lord in your heart. Make his path straight. Remove the obstacles in your life that might hinder your reception of the Messiah and his kingdom. Well, we're got around. All of Judea, Jerusalem, came out to see him. And we read here in Matthew that there was really three groups that came out to see him. We had sort of the common Jews who were longing for the Messiah. And we have the Pharisees and we have the Sadducees. We'll talk a little bit about who, those, who these guys are. We're going to read a lot about them. <laughs> Later on, so it's good to know, lay the foundation for, for who these guys are. So the Pharisees, um, I'll, go, I'll talk about them briefly, but the Pharisees, they were really laymen, uh, layman's, uh, a layman's fellowship uh, connected with the local synagogues, okay? So these guys were, 
heavily involved in, their, in the local Jewish synagogues. Um, they, were, they adhered to strict, extensive, often extra-biblical traditions, which they rigorously obeyed, at least in public. Fanatical obedience marked the Pharisee, thinking that their obedience would lead them to their resurrection with God after death. Many focused on outward appearances while neglecting the weightier matters of the moral law and the spiritual meaning behind their showy ceremonies. Others were just hypocrites, saying one thing in public and doing the opposite in private. Then we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees often locked horns with the Pharisees, okay? The Pharisees were more generally loved, I would say, or appreciated by the common Jews. The Sadducees were not. The Sadducees were in cahoots with Rome. They were, they were the group who were removed from the common people. They were arist aristocratic. They cooperated with Rome. They rejected the Pharisees' extra-biblical traditions and, not only considered, and only considered the Pentateuch to be the biblical canon. They did not believe in the resurrection. And in Sunday school, you, knew, you learned that that's why There you go. If the mic didn't pick that up, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. Okay. You hadn't heard that? Maybe you guys have. Okay. Here John calls them, though, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a brood of vipers. Ouch! They thought that being descendants of Abraham, that they were under the good graces of Yahweh. But John says God could, raise, could use stones to raise up children for Abraham. An early sign that the kingdom of heaven would be marked not just by the ancestry of Abraham, but by the inclusion of Gentiles. Those who weren't natural-born children of Abraham. For the Pharisees and Sadducees, the outward appearances and reliance on ancestry, power, or privilege will not, it will not grant citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. John says only a penitent heart and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will grant that citizenship. And John illustrates the consequences for unrepentance. We see the illustration here of an axe chopping down the trees that are thrown then into the fire and chaff separated from wheat and also thrown into the fire. I'm not a farmer, <laughs> but you know what a winnowing fork is? I've seen them maybe on TV. They throw the wheat up and the chaff flies away into the wind and the good wheat falls to the ground. Okay, that's what we see. That's the picture we see here. The chaff blows away. It's ultimately scooped up and thrown into the fire. This fire is described as unquenchable. Repent. John's message is one of hope in the new kingdom, but a king always has enemies. 
His message is a warning to those enemies. Repent. Be baptized with water so you can avoid the baptism by fire by the new king. So what do we take away here? John says a man is coming after him who is mightier than him and whose sandals he is not worthy to carry. We know that's Jesus. This man will baptize not with water but with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what do we take away? Number one, what barriers in your life exist that need to be removed to pave the way for more Jesus in your life? Believer, you have the Holy Spirit, but we still have the old man in us as well. What do we need to repent of today? What needs to be removed from our hearts to pave the way for more Jesus? Number two, do you feel the kingdom of heaven now? It's here. Jesus brought it. It's here. Yes, we go to heaven when we die. But friends, the kingdom of heaven is here right now. Do we live into that? Do we live with the flourishing that goes on with a life with Jesus? What does that look like? Point three, produce good fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not plural. That's singular. Fruit is singular. A life with Jesus produces all of those things. A life led by the Spirit embodies all the characteristics. What areas do you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you produce good fruit? Point four, God uses us to expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth. We're messengers too. As Malachi, as Isaiah, as John, later the disciples, we're we're his subjects. The kingdom is here and we are his subjects. And we've been given a command by Jesus to tell everyone about him. What John the Baptist started, we are here to continue. Do we do that? And my last point, God's kingdom is a monarchy. It's not a democracy. In the Western world, we are used to having a say in everything. We get a vote. Everybody gets a vote, right? Our leaders represent the will of the people. This is a good thing. A democratic, constitutional republic is the best form of government that exists in this fallen world. Prove me wrong. If every man has fallen, then the power should be spread across as wide of a spectrum as possible and not be concentrated among the few or the one. A monarchy, in fact, is the worst form of the government that could be. A monarchy ruled by a fallen man is the worst. Power corrupts and power Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But Jesus' kingdom is a monarchy. What if the monarch was all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present? What if he were always perfect 
always just, always right in all decisions? What if you were always good? Now that is the perfect kingdom and that is the perfect government. Friends, he is perfect. He is just. He is right. And he is good. The Messiah is here. Lord, you are good. And we are so thankful that you are good. Lord, we're your subjects in this kingdom. Help us to live into that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us. Guide and direct our paths. Fill us with fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Help us to, to show that fruit to others around us. We repent of the ways where we let our old man, our old sinful man carry us and we turn to you. Help us to teach others about what you've done in our lives to spread your kingdom before you return again. We pray as a church minister to those around you, around, around us, minister to each other. We pray that that spirit, that that fruit of the spirit would be evident in all of us here. We thank you that you're a good king. In Jesus' name.